But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. We did some mapping, and it seems that maybe this is one of four remaining episodes for season nine of The Body Serve. Home stretch. I certainly cannot imagine birthing more than those four <laughs> in <laughs> the time that's left. Uh, the tennis season is pretty much over, and it, it snuck up on me, honestly. Only Davis Cup is left, but now I feel like Okay, it's crunch time. We have four more episodes. I hope people will still be engaged. Well, there's this episode, there's the WTA year and wrap, the ATP year and wrap, and then we're going to do a history episode. Yeah. And I, I don't know in which order that will be. Okay. Can we coming. say what the history episode is going to be? No, because somebody else will do it. Who's going to go and <laughs> do it within a month? No, as you know, that's not how we do it. And I also want to make sure that we have enough material and it will be interesting before I commit on tape. The first thing I want to talk about is the Billie Jean King Cup. I got it right that time. The Formerly Fed Cup. Canada, our uh, home adopted country, wins BJK Cup. Canada holds both of the international titles at the same time. For now. For now. Uh, last year, of course, the men's side won Davis Cup. This year, led by Layla Fernandez and Gabby Dabrowski, the Canadian women's team wins BJK Cup for the very first time. This kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, because uh, a number of Canadians have had a rough stretch this year. Layla nearly fell out of the top 100 during the year. Uh, Bianca hasn't played since Montreal. On the men's side, you know, Felix had a very rough year until the end. Dennis has been injured. And a number of them had a striking turnaround toward the end of the year. Right, but they also have one of the very top doubles players in the world. In they Gabby do. Dabrowski, you had Leila Fernandez not losing a match in Billie Jean King Cup all year. It is so difficult <laughs> to say the name of this tournament in a seamless way that flows with, you know, everything. <laughs> Maybe they should have just called it the Billy Cup or something, you know? Or the King Cup. Uh, yeah, yeah, something like that. Anyway, Layla turned her year around uh, in the fall, winning Hong Kong, reaching the semifinals in Nanchang, up to number 36. And then Gabby Dabrowski, who had, for much of the year, kind of a so-so year, uh, danced around, you know, ranked number 20, 21, but then wins the U.S. Open with Rutliff. They also win Zhangzhou. They're runners-up in Guadalajara. And then they reach the semifinals of the WTA Finals. And while all of this is going on, Dabrowski is also playing BJK Cup for Canada. Great. But this tournament does not happen for Canada without Marina Stakusic. Right. World number 261 at the time of this tournament. Goes 3-1, mm -hmm. beating... Masarova, Frech, and Trevisan. I'm sorry, but it's not Trevisan. Well, in this case, it was. 
taking a, a straight sets beating by the young Canadian. Her only loss at the tournament was to Krejcikova, and that was the Czech's only point in the semifinals. Now, when Canada made it to the semifinals that weekend, I was at work, and somebody was making small talk, as they do with me about tennis, and saying, oh, so do you think Canada can win? And I'm like, no. I almost laughed it off. I'm like, this is this is Czech territory. This, yeah. What are we doing here? <laughs> cute story, cute run, cute, <laughs> you know, but... And lo and behold... But Layla is is truly the queen of this tournament, the MVP. As you said, she was undefeated in this tournament all year. She had singles victories over Cerebus Tormo, Lynette, and of course, Wimbledon champion Vondrosova, Paulini, and then wins the doubles tie against the Czechs over Siniakova and Krejcikova with Dabrowski. That could be Siniakova and Krejcikova's last match together. Likely won't, but it could be. Dabrowski as well was undefeated this year. She paired with Jeannie Bouchard and Layla Fernandez in doubles. And just want to call out Layla's endorsement with Ritz Crackers. I ran into that on Twitter in an actual promoted tweet of sweet commercial about immigrant kids or the kids of immigrants taking their culture's lunch to school and, and not being ashamed of it. Canada played Italy in the final and it's kind of confusing because this whole week were were the finals, but this was the decisive tie against Italy. It was the first time Italy had made the final two since 2013. And you'll remember during that golden age of Italian tennis, they won four Fed Cups. I remember um, I was studying abroad in Italy in 2006, the first time the Italian team won the Fed Cup. And it was huge. It was the same year, just a few months after Italy's World Cup victory, of course. Sports were everywhere in the country. And I remember seeing the team like on the front page of newspapers and stuff. Back then, it was Panetta, Schiavone, Vinci, and uh, Sant'Angelo. And then later, Sarah Arani, of course, won three Fed Cups with the team. I just want to, I always want to like big up that Italian women's team because they really inspired the current crop of women's and men's. Italian tennis, which is seeing somewhat of a renaissance itself. This past week, the big news in tennis really was the ATP finals in Italy. Here we are, Italy. And wow, a fumbling of the bag (laughs) occurred at this tournament. Novak Djokovic has won his 727th year in title. He has spent 2,000 weeks at world number one. He owns every record at least twice. What else has happened? (laughs) Uh, at this point, I'm wondering if it will ever end. In reality, it was his seventh finals title. He gets the record, separates himself from Roger Federer in that area. His 98th career title is five away from Federer, and then Connors is a, a few more. $180 million in career prize money? That sounds made up to me. It's not, because he did way more winning later in calendar life. Yeah. Than Federer did, than Nadal did. Like, this tournament awarded, what, four point how much million? Yeah, 4.4 million for him. Totally believable. This is what happens. You go look at the top 20 all-time money leaders on the PGA Tour, and you're like, that don't make no sense. But Mm. prize money in sports is completely different now, even in the last 10 years. So when people point to that as some kind of... First of all, it's gross to me to be talking about, oh, that person won 90 million, 100 million, like... 
get a grip because that's that's just scratching the surface. So I, I can't bring of it up their overall wealth. It's a stinking amount of money that yes. all of these top stars have. I'm not interested. That's not something that as a fan I ever took pride in my fave being better than the other end. It's just it's tacky. Um okay. What? <laughs> well, I'm ju- I'm just saying. Uh, it was um a notable figure, which is why I brought it up. Only two other people have ever gone over 100 million. And the one of the reasons to talk about it is, well, to note, prize money has grown significantly over the past decade or so. Serena Williams hasn't even hit 100 million with her 23 Grand Slam titles. You know, there is a huge disparity here. If she were playing on the men's tour, she would have well exceeded that number. I was only reacting to you saying, I can't believe that figure. And I was just saying the figure is believable, but also I don't care about the figure. That's right. all I was saying. Okay. Well, you went on quite a while. Yes. It happens sometimes. Anyway, do we want to set the scene? You mentioned uh, somebody fumbled the bag. What's the context there? Well, the context is that hometown favorite Yannick Sinner was beating everybody left, right, and center. And when pre- presented with an opportunity to have Novak expelled from the tournament, he chose not to. Yes. On Thursday, regardless of what Novak did in his third round-robin match, Sinner could have knocked him out had he lost to Runa. Or Runa could have knocked him out. Sinner had already won both of his matches in the round-robin stage. Looked really good. One of those wins being that superb three-set win over Djokovic. 7-2 in the third set tiebreak. Set himself up really nicely. To win this event. Mm -hmm. Not often does Novak historically find himself in a position where he's dependent on the results of others to qualify for the semifinals at the year-end championships. And this is where we were. And there was a lot of talk online about this. What should Sinner do? Should he tank? Will he tank? Is it ethical? Some people talking about how it's akin to match-fixing if he tanked it. Meanwhile, everybody following this knows that if Novak makes the semifinals, it's over for all of the other (laughs) players. Yes. There is no way you're going to beat Novak twice in one tournament. It's not going to happen. It called to mind that WTA finals, what was it, 2014? Yes. With Serena and Simona. Simona waxed Serena in the round robin phase 6-2-6 love and Simona had the chance to keep Serena out of the semifinal pretty much the exact same scenario yes in this case uh if Simona had lost to Ivanovic in straight sets Serena would have finished third in the group and then Halep and Ivanovic would have qualified for the semifinals and of course people were saying oh is Simona gonna tank this what like why would she go all out she still lost to Ivanovic in three sets But by going three sets, she allowed Serena to qualify for the semis. And again, even though that scoreline in their first match was so shocking, you... What was it, like 6-2-6 love? Yes. And Serena was coming off an injury. Uh, She had won the U.S. Open in September. But if you had the chance to take down the queen, would you? Of that scenario, Serena said, quote, That's not how we as WTA players play. We play and give our all for everything. She definitely gives her all, so I don't think that went through her mind at all. 
And I agree. I I think it probably didn't cross her mind, just like it probably didn't cross Yannick Sinner's mind. Was her to, coach Darren Cahill at the time? No, it was uh, Wim Fassett okay. back then, yeah. It would have been an amazing coincidence had it been Darren both times. I do think that the tournament format itself invites this kind of thinking. It's a problem of design, right? I don't think that players... So players are in a position to actually make the choice to... Should I... It's And it's not necessarily even tanking. It's like, should I kind of take it easy? Maybe play at 90% during this match and see what happens. The round-robin format asks you to make those kind of ethical decisions. And I actually don't... I don't know. It's just me. Like, I don't think it's unethical to think about that. That's how the tournament is designed. Right. But if you're Yannick Sinner, if you are trying to assert yourself as the next one, Carlos has already done it. You want to be the next one to put your hand up. You've suffered from bouts of mental fragility throughout your young career so far. Do you, in service of building a quote-unquote champion's mentality undercut that effort by trying to play these mind games. Right, right. And I agree. I don't think that Yannick was ever going to do it. I don't think it was a possibility. There's so many reasons why you wouldn't. You don't want to mess with your own rhythm. Athletes at this level can be very superstitious and very process-driven. So if you don't play your all for a pretty important match, even though it's kind of a dead rubber... What does that do to your preparation and your mindset? Also, you're playing at home in northern Italy for crowds that adore you and want you to win. That is the other complication Mm -hmm. that I don't think got enough juice in this conversation. Right. He fed off the crowd the entire week. It was his tournament. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure he felt a huge responsibility to show up for every crowd that he played in front of. I just know if it were me, and given the plausible deniability that that back discomfort presented in that match against Runa, I would have taken it. I would have found some way to finesse my way out of that match. Right. But elite athletes don't think like normal people. They don't think like us. And I think most athletes will say publicly, uh, they might be trying to convince themselves that they believe it, But they're going to tell you, I want to beat the best. If I want to win this tournament, I don't want it to be because I kind of finesse the rules and and my biggest competition. Rafa will disagree with you on that. He's always been very consistent. (laughs) I don't need to play and suffer to win the title. Right, right. But I don't, I, I think what's getting a little too much play is the purity of competition. And we know that's a myth. Of course, these athletes are trying their hardest throughout the year, but sometimes athletes mail in a performance. It's not unprecedented that a player has thrown a match in order to knock out competition. Yvonne Lendl did it in an ATP Finals in the 1980s. It is more common in team sports, I would say, because it's easier to hide. You know, a team might not play their best players for a certain game if you can knock out a big competitor. This happens. And again, we have people bloviating about this issue. (laughs) The usual suspects. How dare you suggest that any player worth their salt with any integrity would do this? Well, 
I mean, we've listed the reasons why one would be tempted, why one would do it. Mm -hmm. uh, there, I mean, there were people calling for journalists to be removed from their roles on Tennis Channel or at the papers they work for, for even suggesting that a player would think that way. And I just need everyone to calm down. It's truly not that serious. Mind you, some of these bloviators are the same ones presenting tennis, commentating on tennis, behind a backdrop of tennis betting sponsors. Oh. So. <laughs> well, well. The ethics not gonna, of it all. Not going to touch that one. This whole conversation turned out to be moot because Sinner fought hard to win this match against Runa. He won in three sets. He went undefeated in the round robin stage. And his form honestly never looked better. Now going into the final versus Novak, Sinner was winning 80% or more of his first serve points for all four of his matches. It's just wild. And more than 50% of his second serve. So to me, the serve is the biggest improvement in his game, and there have been a lot of improvements. Sure. We're also indoors. We're also still playing best of three sets. Mm -hmm. Not playing four-hour three-set matches. You know, the, well, I'm not trying to extrapolate this. I'm just saying I am, his game has improved. I understand that. I'm saying that folks should still exercise some caution. He was close to winning me over. Had he gone through, made that decision to go 3-0 in the round robin and beat Novak again in the final, I would have been on board. But <laughs> Or at least won a set. It just was giving me memories of recent history with him still. Okay. I also think, uh, well, I'll get to that in a second. To be sure, Novak was imperious in this final. He had a clear plan of trying to hit as many forehands as possible. Using his speed to run around his backhand, to hit these... I mean, he out-hit Sinner on the forehand, higher speeds throughout the entire match, and then lost only eight points on his serve throughout the entire thing. Eight points on serve, fine, but at 3-2 in the second set, Sinner had two break points. The following service game that Novak had, I believe it would have been 4-3, Sinner got to love 30. He was making mm -hmm. some inroads, but couldn't push it further. Djokovic was imperious, but there were still some opportunities. Right. He, <laughs> the thing is... Novak obviously has so many tools that whatever game plan he decides on, he can execute during a match. But if you're Yannick Sinner, you cannot be out hit on the serve and off the ground. Because what at that point, what are you good for? You're not going to outrun him. You're not going to out defend him. So that leaves you with what? That leaves you with 6-3, 6-3. It leaves him and us with the inevitable outcome. Right. And it... It feels like, at 36 years old, who is coming? Well, this is after Novak beat Carlos in the semifinals. Yeah. Easily. Again. Carlos has, I mean, we're toward the end of the season. He hasn't been in great form. He seemed a little bit mentally exhausted, I think, through this tournament. 6-3-6-2, and it, it surely felt that way. He, again, had a big chance, a very brief chance, early in the second set, to change things up didn't and it was over in a flash after that Novak is allowed into the semifinals he's then faced with the guy who beat him at Wimbledon probably the 
biggest upset of the entire year. Like the most stunning result of the entire year on the men's side. His rival for number one. They'd been going back and forth for a bit. He was his only competitor for number one, year and number one ranking. Mm. Beats him in the semifinal. And then this guy who's had this impregnable fall, amazing fall season, is feeling his oats, running rampant in Turin in front of his home crowd, looking to be the next upstart. Takes them out easily back to back in the semis and final to say, well, hey, I know y'all thought this was going to be the inevitable result, but let me just put a little bit more emphasis on that (laughs) for all the haters, for all the fans, for the history. Mm -hmm. And so whether this result comes with a little bit of salt or sweetness, it is emphatic. It is. And and he is polite and says, these guys are making me work my ass off for it. And no doubt he works his ass off off the court. But uh, it's it's very complimentary to say these guys are making me work for it when you win the semis and finals and straight sets. When the other guy didn't really have much of a chance at any point. Well, we came across this in our reading for our history episode that we're doing. Mm. Whereby one upstart at the time said that this legend only has nice things to say about people when they're no longer a threat. <laughs> but when they're coming at... The heels, when they're nipping at the heels and they're looking to be a problem, then it's everybody on mute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, we'll get into that later. I think what I was going to say earlier was that no doubt the ATP finals are an important event, but you're getting players at a unique time in the season, right? A lot of players who haven't played well during the season started to peak in the autumn. We saw that with Felix, of course. Someone like Medvedev, Sinner, went on the upswing again in the autumn. But a lot of players are just exhausted. And so if you're a player with such supreme fitness like Novak and motivation, and someone who at this point plans their season very well, you have a better chance of excelling at the World Tour Finals. He barely played in the fall. Right. And so he he's able to come in probably fresher than a lot of these guys. He loves playing indoors. Well, he loves playing everywhere. He can play on anything. Not all of these guys play that well indoors. It's not their Mm. favorite surface. And it's not a frequent surface. And these these courts were playing fast, too. But what we also get at this tournament is an outsized spectacle for what the tournament really is, to my mind. For all those reasons that you said, players not necessarily bringing their best, not being able to bring their best at this time of season, Mm. you're getting... $390,000 per round-robin win, 200 points per win. The overall prize money at this tournament being the biggest in tennis history. Mm -hmm. The money is wild. The money is... (laughs) Oh, that was your toothless glare? That was my hiding closet. I was like, can you stop? That's annoying. And it's by design. When the WTA a few years ago came and said, hey, we're paying 3.3 something million dollars, the ATP announced, well, we're doing 3.3 and $1. No, but because this is, this is what we want this event to signify the largesse of men's tennis. Mm -hmm. And they do a great job with it. This is what you can do with a site that looks majestic. 
not I mean not the site, but the the locale and a spot that's slightly permanent and just the money behind it. We know that men's tennis generates a lot more sponsorship and media rights dollars than women's tennis. That's an unfortunate truth. But the the spectacle that they put on in Turin, the men walking through this massive piazza in Italy's first capital city. Did you know that? I did not. <laughs> it was no. the first capital of unified Italy in 1861. But there's just so much uh, pomp and circumstance about it. You have Tsitsipas wearing this $5,000 poncho. I thought it looked amazing. I thought it was such a cool choice. And then you got some guys in Letterman jackets, which is just a, a baffling choice. A repeat choice as well. It happens every year now. I know we're not supposed to critique the fashions. Right? Since we, we went away that, from but... showing up in suits, this is not the first time that the bomber slash letterman <laughs> jacket has made an appearance. It's so strange. Why, why that bit of American culture? I... The poncho that Tsitsipas wore very much had him giving tennis Jesus. Some yes. people were saying it was... More a Laurel Canyon kind of affair. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course. They're kind of intertwined. Love Laurel Canyon. But who came first? The poncho was (laughs) great for me. No. (laughs) The poncho was great for me until you could look and see he was just wearing a dotiganzi underneath it. And can you tell the people what a dotiganzi is? Just a a nasty little t shirt. Like an undershirt. Yeah. Like I. (laughs) How? It just. Pay more attention to the detail of it. You okay. Know, okay. Is my thing. Wow. It's feeling like Michael Kors here. I did not enjoy that. I was disgusted by that part. <laughs> and if there is to be an undergarment, let it not be something looking like it came out of a six pack of Hanes. Wow. Wow. I'm stunned. I was not impressed. Anyway, all of this largesse is represented in the money and then also in the trophy. The most absurdly big trophy you will find it's giving small dick energy it's giving overcompensating oh and the atp has a lot to overcompensate for (laughs) in my mind Mm. especially when uh crownings were of the comeback king on social media oh they got roasted bad for that one there was another minor controversy over tsitsipas's withdrawal during his second match in round robin uh, while Una was leading 2-1. Honestly, I think the criticism is unfair. I personally think if you've qualified for this tournament, if you've worked hard all year, you go out and try if you want to, right? You feel like maybe your body's not okay, but I'm going to go out there and try and see what happens. So what? It happens all the time. Some players worry about, should I pull out of this tournament? And then they win it, right? Tennis players are injured constantly. So I forgive a player if they maybe don't know the extent of their injury. And to be honest, even if they do, well, they they deserve to be here based on the numbers. What do you think? What is the controversy here? Oh, people that he said that he played. He should even, have ceded the spot well, to Orkatch. Well, the CEO of Lacoste was out on Twitter saying that Tsitsipas was an unfair player because of what he did to, I suppose, Horkach as the uh, the alternate. It is just so deeply stupid. It's his right. (laughs) It is, right? And why are you, as a CEO of a tennis clothing company, 
bloviating on Twitter about who is exhibiting sportsmanship and who's not. Mm. It's so unprofessional. We don't have any affiliation, so we're going to continue speaking our minds. Moving on from the ATP Finals, the ATP announced recently that they've upgraded a few tournaments to the 500 level. But for folks in the U.S., the big news is that Newport and Atlanta tournaments are done. They have been canceled. And it continues the the gutting of the U.S. Open series as we once knew it. So the Atlanta event that week it can just go back to being a parking lot. Yes. Atlanta became a tournament uh, back in 2010 after they bought the license from the ATP, which previously belonged to Indianapolis. I've never been there, but I understand it was put on in Atlantic Station and they built temporary courts every year, but it's been likened to a parking lot. Newport, of course, was hosted at the beautiful grounds where the International Hall of Tennis Hall of Fame is recently featured on the Gilded Age, mm-hmm. and they did film there on location. This site was actually the site of the original United States Championships for 33 years before it moved to Forest Hills. Back in the late 19th century. Yes, yes. Newport was in the modern age on the Grand Prix Tour and then the ATP since 1976. So, of course, Newport has a storied past in tennis history. It was the only grass court tournament remaining outside of Europe. It was the Wimbledon of the United States. <laughs> sort of, sort of. Uh, but it is, it's emblematic of that old East Coast, a mega wealthy, uh, you know, that tennis lifestyle. It, it was kind of like America's south of France or America's Eastbourne. It was intertwined with American new money. Indeed. Yeah, well, and old money. If Well, if you watch The Gilded Age, Newport was the favorite vacation spot of a lot of people, especially when the railroads opened. Exciting news for us. Rafa Nadal will make a return to tennis in 2024. This had been up in the air for months. Rafa didn't know. We didn't know. He has now said definitively this week, well, now is Monday, in the last couple of days that he absolutely will be back. He just has to pick a spot and then he let us know. <laughs> Rafa is famously very cautious. And in the past, he's underplayed his chances a lot because he doesn't want to get expectations too high. But he said last week at a tennis clinic that he didn't know if he'd ever play again. And he said that only over the past few weeks has it become clear that he would. Now, he actually has said this before that he wasn't sure if he'd ever make a return to tennis. That was, I think, in 2021. And of course he did. But he says, whether it's in one place or another, I'm not yet ready to say. Which felt like a little tongue-in-cheek jibe at, what's his name? Craig. Craig who? From the Australian Open. What's his name? Oh, Craig Tiley. Yes, Craig Tiley. Oh, gotcha. (laughs) Because there was another Craig that said that sources had told him that Rafa would never play again, that it's really bad, really grim. We'll get to him again I will, later I in the episode. I do really look forward. I really hope he comes back because I just want to be right. A couple of splits. You mentioned previously that Babs Krejcikova and Siniakova have announced their split. One of the most successful women's doubles teams, one of the most successful doubles teams, period, of the last decade. They will not play together in 2024 outside of a possible pairing 
at the Paris Olympic Games. Yes. The decision was made by Siniakaba. She said she kind of needed a break. And they said it may not be forever, but for it's for now. As a team, they won seven slams, all of them at least once. They have a career Grand Slam. In 2022, they won three of the four. They've won the Olympic gold together, WTA finals, pretty much everything you can do. They had kind of a disappointing season after a great start, winning the Australian Open and Indian Wells. They lost in the first round of Roland Garros, skipped Wimbledon, lost in the second round of the U.S. Open, and unfortunately, their last match is going to be that loss to Canada in BJK Cup, for now. The other big split was Andy Murray and Ivan Lendl for a third time? Yeah, I believe a third time. According to uh, Tamayni Karyal's story in The Guardian, Ivan did not travel a lot outside of the slams, and on being courtside, Tumaini wrote this, <laughs> Lindell, quote, appeared to offer little help, even though coaches are now allowed to offer tactical advice and encouragement during matches. Uh, if you know Ivan Lendl, he is very stoic. He's not the kind of guy who's going to yell out a lot of let's goes and, and come ons. Uh, but even the tactical part, he didn't really seem like that was his style. This happens alongside Andy Murray saying, quote, I'm not really enjoying it just now in terms of how I feel on the court and how I'm playing. So I need to try to find some of that enjoyment back. That was after his last tournament of the year. For 2023, he's 16 and 17 on the year. He won three challenger titles, but hasn't won back-to-back matches on the main tour since Canada. His best result being a runner-up in Doha. Murray still works with Mark Hilton, an LTA coach, as well as Johnny Amaro. As you know, we would never tell a player to retire or when they should retire, but I do agree, we're not enjoying it either. Wow. Well, it's not enjoyable because Andy, even during his best years, was dour and angry on court a lot of the time. It's a lot harder to take when he's also not winning that much. Last week, we also got some news, courtesy of Defector, that Racket Magazine could be in trouble. Uh, yeah, I was surprised to see this story, written by Samara Kaloff, uh, talks about the apparent tensions between co-founders Dave Shaftel and Caitlin Thompson. Uh, we've had Caitlin on the show before, way back, I think in uh, 2016, around there, when they were launching Racket Magazine. We were a paid sponsor of Racket to help promote the launch at one point. I think maybe one of two yeah, paid yeah. advertisings we've done in our run on this show. Right. So in uh, full disclosure, let's get out that out there. That was about six or seven years ago when they started. Um, I, you know, didn't know any of this stuff was going on, but apparently there were major conflicts about revenue and about how to spend money and how to raise money. The and- direction of the brand. Apparently, in an email sent to staff and contributors on November 3rd, Thompson announced that Shaftel had left the company, quote, after we couldn't agree on the best path forward. Obviously, after building Racket together over the better part of eight years, this wasn't a turn of events that in any way was taken lightly. Shaftel was pretty forthcoming with the journalist about what was going on. I noticed that Craig Shapiro was also uh, contributing. (laughs) That was a... Honestly, that was surprising to me, though. And just how Um, much was contributed. 
Right. That was surprising to me. And apparently, I guess Craig is no longer affiliated with the Racket brand. And there was, as he says, a pretty big falling out between him and Caitlin. I don't know any of the personal stuff. I personally hope that the magazine survives. I think it's supported a lot of great design and art and journalism in the past. There is a particular editorial, uh, I guess, philosophy that's not for everyone. There's an aesthetic that's not for everyone. It may not be for you. But I think in general, the difficulty that tennis has in sustaining any kind of journalism around it is depressing. Right. And given those financial constraints that everybody struggles with in tennis, mm-hmm. it I think a lot of people, ourselves included, looked on at some of these events that were being hosted and were like, well, the well, Racket House stuff. And I was like, how is this happening? I you know? often wondered, like, where where is the money coming from? And to that end... David Shaftel says, quote, she, Caitlin, will say that the company was insolvent and I wouldn't let her raise money because she needs me to sign off to raise money. That is true. But if I was to take a red pen to that statement, I would say we are insolvent because of her reckless actions and I wouldn't let her raise money because I lost faith in her leadership. So this is acrimonious. Yeah. This is not publicly. Since the story came out, the Renee Stubbs podcast has released an episode, so I assume that Renee is still affiliated with the It was formerly the Racket podcast, right? Right, and now I think it's renamed the Renee Stubbs tennis podcast, right? But it's with Renee and Caitlin. The newsletter, which arrived every Friday, written by Geary Nathan, that stopped for about a week. And we learned that Geary will no longer be writing for Racket going forward in that newsletter format. Mm-hmm. It's back, and it's with Alan McDuffie. Yes. Who is the founder of Court Theory. Uh, So that's a change. The podcast is back. I don't know what the plans are for the print magazine. I think the article said that the next issue was pushed till January or something like that. So we'll see. One of the things that was curious to me was just how much was offered by Craig Shapiro in this article. And he's described here as a documentary filmmaker and host of an eponymous tennis podcast, and that he first learned of racket when he showed up to one of the magazine's events at the private tennis club Court 16 in Brooklyn. He's a self-described, quote, hired gun slash friend of the magazine. He befriended both founders. Well, if you read between the lines there, that's somebody who ingratiated himself to a new product, right? And so now to turn, like a side has been chosen because Caitlin has just been run over back and forth by this guy in this article. Yeah, <laughs> and I, was, it's like, I was surprised by that because I th- I mean, it had appeared publicly that he was pretty enmeshed within the brand and he was often seen with Caitlin, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's just a shame to, to read all that. Yeah, the whole thing was super messy. We'll see how it plays out. Well, one more thing though. When that defector tweet hit, And everybody was kind of taking it in. It had a very small reach. And it was mostly tennis people. Mm -hmm. People who Mm -hmm. we knew. Twitter handles that we were familiar with. And I bookmarked it. And I went back the next day to see what had happened with the story. Completely overrun by crocodiles. Oh, yes. And by that, I mean fans of Novak Djokovic. All of them celebrating the demise of Racket. Saying that they're trash. And that this is what they deserve, presumably because of a perceived slight 
in the editorial brand. Mm-hmm. Oh, and especially Nova, especially Geary's writing. They hate him. Uh, they think, I mean, they think they're xenophobic, that they hate Novak. I wish they had a sense of humor, you know? Just <laughs> because if you want to be nasty and evil, you ha- should at least be funny about it. Well, you can have a wink wink. Because it's just, oh my God. And it was a very similar thing. So in Toronto, the company I used to work for uh, closed a major, major part of its business, which was the community newspapers and they laid off over 600 people with no notice or severance pay which if you live in canada or another country you know with like better employment standards than the u.s that is shocking and incredibly shitty and they got away with it because they declared bankruptcy but anyway the vitriol underneath the tweets announcing the layoffs people were celebrating you know, so happy that these people are losing their job because they're like the lying press. It's just sick, man. It really is. That instinct to uh, to celebrate the demise of journalism because you think it's against your favorite. Like, get a life. Naomi Osaka has announced that she'll be returning to tennis in Brisbane. Yeah. I'm so excited for these two returns to tennis. Naomi and Rafa in 2024. I don't even need them to be out here winning things all over the place. I just want them to be out here happy and giving a good account of themselves. Mm -hmm. That's all I need. Something new, something fun to look forward to. Not this same old shit. (laughs) The last thing I want to talk about on the podcast before we go for this episode, it's not going to be a super long episode, is kind of a reflection on where we are with the show where we are in how we view what we're doing, what we've done, and what we hope to do in the future. And you have said to me probably dozens of times over the last couple of years that you need something fresh. You Mm -hmm. need to do something different, that you feel like the product is almost stale. And I kept having to assuage those concerns. I too now, I think, am at a spot where I'd be open to doing something different. Does the podcast continue to be maybe three times a month, weekly in stretches, every other week in others? Do we become more of a once a month history episode podcast where we still show up for the slams, but maybe not on a week to week basis? Or do we continue as we are, which is what I'm also totally fine with doing. I think my my conception of the body serve is open to different ideas now, is what I'm saying. We are almost nine years in, almost toward the end of our ninth season. I will say we did not discuss any of this before we started recording, so you've surprised me with a few of your uh, maybes. Mm-hmm. By design. By design. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I, I will admit, I mean, it's it's fatiguing. Of course. We've done this regularly for nine years. I think our longest gap ever has been three weeks. And we've followed the tours. And there's only so much you can say. At some point, I feel like you run out of things to say. And sometimes you run out of enthusiasm about just the ins and outs of the tennis tour every year. There are a lot of fans on here that are far more dedicated than we are. We're dedicated to something different, of course. Uh, But yeah, I would be totally cool with 
changing things around. But, you know, a lot of times podcasts do this and then lose their audience. <laughs> so you, you have to like balance why are the people here? You know, the people who have been writing for you, why are they still here? You see what I did there? Hmm. I turned it back on you to now tell me what I've been telling you. Oh, wow. For the last couple of years. Oh, you think you outsmarted me? I did. I just mm-hmm. did that little wow. thing just now. So you don't want to do any of those things you mentioned? No, I want to do. <laughs> I want to absolutely do more history episodes. Yes, yes. I think for whatever reason, well, I know what some of those reasons are. Life happens, mm. right? It's, it's, it's difficult to plan it that even when you have something you want to tackle, it might be ready, nearing readiness, the tennis schedule doesn't allow it. We're right. not just going to dump that type of episode just because it's finished. During Indian Wells. Or, you right? know. It's, but in terms of the direction of the show, the, the thing that I think I am most certain of is that I don't think the body serve needs to be in press conferences to be valuable in service of the body serve being us. I don't think we need to be impressed mm-hmm. to be, to make the podcast work. Yeah. You know, and I, well, I you know, somebody said that uh, we don't do any original reporting, so our work has no value. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, none, no value whatsoever. None. But that person also thought blogging was stupid, but now they do it too. So anyway, though that's out there on the internet, on Twitter somewhere. If somebody if wants want. to go find it. Uh, We'll send you a tote bag if you find it, if you find those receipts. <laughs> no, but <laughs> I think... piece those puzzles together. <laughs> I, I'm i someone who rarely um, takes time, and I think a lot of us are like this. We don't really take time to uh, celebrate things that we're proud of or milestones we've we've achieved. I, I know that we've done a lot of work that I'm proud of, so I sort of need to remind myself. Right, but the reason why I was mentioning the press conferences specifically is that not that we are tennis outsiders, but I feel like you almost have to pick a lane. And we, we cannot be in press conferences consistently enough for that to be viable. Right. You know, but it's just not something we can do. And it, as it turns out, it's not something we want to do. That kind of proximity to players doesn't serve what we think we do best on this show, which is to talk about how tennis interacts with the outside world. The intersection of tennis with politics and society and culture, mm. essentially. So I want to remain in the outside world as in much, service of that. Right? As much as possible. Yeah, we yeah. found over the last few years, especially that when things happen inside of tennis, it is so easy to be conflicted out of not being able to speak fully to something. And totally. that's a position I never want to be in on this show. Mm-hmm. To think about which player would never come on the show if they heard what we said, which journalist would never talk to us if we met them in person, who wouldn't be our friend. Who caught a case, but we can't talk about it because we're too close to the situation. So we're not insiders, but at this point, we're not fully outsiders either. No. Um, So it puts us in an interesting spot. I guess what you're saying is that we're going to be up in Toronto Reference Library over the Christmas break. I sent you <laughs> like five or six different episode ideas you last did, night. You did. I think uh, we're, A, going to have to learn Czech. That'll be the oh, first. Oh, you're giving hints now? <laughs> if we want to go down this path. There'll be a lot of pronunciations that we're going to screw up. To the other point you made about 
not often taken the time to celebrate the things that we've done or to remember the things that we're legitimately proud of, there are a bunch of history episodes that I'm really happy with. Mm -hmm. It feels like two years ago that we did the Serena episode. It was six months ago. Right, right. Just six months ago. It's been too long since we've done one, but that was only six months Mm. ago. And so every time either of us gets into that rut where we're feeling like we're just going through the motions or not producing something that's earth shattering, you know, (laughs) Mm. we need to then throw ourselves into a project because that's clearly the stuff that really motivates us to keep going. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And on that note, we are gearing up to launch, I think, our fourth crowdfunder for the podcast it would be the Mm. fourth right yeah so look out for that in the near future we typically launch it around thanksgiving it's going to be later than that this year yeah u.s thanksgiving is very early this year it's on thursday yeah i kept thinking it's the following week honestly i did not know that that it's the fourth thursday i thought it was the last thursday anyway so that'll be coming uh, along with the remainder of our 2023 season which will be, of course, recaps of both tours, a long-form tennis history episode, and who knows, if we get inspired, maybe another one. Don't hold me to that, though. That brings us to the end of episode 322. Mm -hmm. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. This is the Body Serve. As always, you can find everything Body Serve related at linktree.com slash the Body Serve. That's where you can also find a link to all of our history episodes that we've done. I was thinking just the other day, have we added the Serena one to that link? Mm-hmm. We did for yeah. sure? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so they should all be there. And to listeners who are new to the show, that's something that you should definitely check out. I know a lot of folks are here for the tennis week-to-week coverage and stuff but in the absence of live tennis after davis cup it'd be the perfect time for you to dive into some of that kind of stuff you know my favorite one is the one we did during the pandemic lockdown about the wta tour shortly after the founding so through the 70s Mm. i liked the partial history of lgbt players in tennis Mm. that we did i also really liked the Monica and Steffi ones. I, I'm, yes. I, I'm, I'm happy that we got those two out. And in doing some reading recently, I came across something that I had written for thebodyserve.com talking about Steffi-Monica rivalry. And I was shook that there were so many comments. Like, nobody mm-hmm. read any of the things that I wrote. But for some reason, you know, <laughs> that struck a nerve. the people who are fans of either of those two players, to this day, they are super vocal mm. about what happened and all that went down and the permutations, of course, regarding who would have been better and how it how the, Monica's stabbing affected tennis history. People love to talk about the what ifs with that scenario. It's crazy. Anyway, thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.